Welcome to Hospitality and Politics. I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey, and this show, as always, is powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Listen, we know that there's emerging economies all over the world, and so we should be scouring the globe to find new business and have an, a, a business climate that's welcoming, uh, not to give away the store, but we can have a framework that if you come here, these are the things that we need. I, I mean, we got to be positive thinkers like that. Today, my guest is New York City Council Member Robert E. Cornegie Jr., who represents Brooklyn's 36th district, covering the neighborhoods of Bedford-Stuyvesant and Northern Crown Heights. He's the former chair of the Council's Committee on Small Business, and he is still a very big advocate for small businesses on the Council throughout New York City. Now, we're going to talk about local politics, the small business climate, laws, regulations, the council member's career, even his future ambitions. And if we have time, maybe a little bit about his history playing ball at St. John's. Now, if you like the show, please rate, review, subscribe, share it with your friends, share it with your family. Even if they're not your friends, just share it if you like what you hear. Now, leave a review and you can share us on social media. We're at the NYC Alliance on Twitter and Instagram, New York City Hospitality Alliance on Facebook and LinkedIn. And I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey, and I'm at, at Andrew Ridgey on Twitter and Political Foodie NYC on Instagram. Now, the Hospitality Alliance is the organization making sure that restaurant and nightlife operators have a voice in the halls of government, in the media, and an organization they can turn to for the support education, information they need to succeed in one of the most difficult business climates anywhere in the world. But we are also the best. And that's my opinion, but I think it's also a fact. This podcast, as always, is supported by members of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. To learn more, support our work, join our community, head to thenycalliance.org. I am here with the man, Mr. Robert Cornegie, the council member. How's it going? It is going good. Thank you so much for having me on. I was excited when we spoke and you said, I want to come on Hospitality and Politics. And of course, the door is always open for you. So, you know, this show, we have a lot of people that own and operate restaurants and bars throughout New York City. And they may not all know about politics. They know how government impacts their business when we talk about laws and regulations. But they're not familiar with like the day-to-day life. So you as a council member waking up, what's your life like? What's your day? So thankfully, I've uh, put uh, a little bit of health into my uh, day. So I'm I'm at the gym bright and early in the morning. What time? uh, 5.30. Ooh, that's that's good. (laughs) 5.30. That's because the day is so action-packed. Yeah. Right? From – I feel like if if you're active in your district, which I am – um, then you've got to split your day in half. So I'm, I'm six hours in the district, whether that is meeting the needs of immediate, immediate needs of constituents. And then I'm a policy wonk. So I'm six hours at least at City Hall banging out policy. One of the things a lot of people don't know is I literally went from the 14th floor to the 17th floor. I went from being a legislative policy analyst one day and literally the next day getting elected. So I've, I've been in, uh, on the halls of City Hall, uh, in, in the not so nice places, yeah. uh, are working on policy. So I want to actually talk about, uh, the waking up and the exercise a little bit. That's something I, I started running more, just did another marathon. Um, and I always loved, especially in the morning, cause you kind of get out and whatever's going on in your head, it's like you time. Um, and a lot of restaurant people now just 
the lifestyle nights, weekends, holidays, lots of drinking and everything. So building health into their regimen is important. How does it impact you in your life? Does it? So, so I'm a former athlete and, and I'm sharper and more alert when I'm physically fit. Right. So if I'm eating correctly, if I'm resting correctly, if I'm in the gym, I'm ready to go. Like, I'm, you know, you can't get anything. Yeah. Pa- you, can't, you can literally, figuratively and literally, it's, it's tough to get something past me. And you, you got to be that sharp as a council member. Right. So if you're I'm on some very important committees, um, I'm on uh, the finance committee. You know, I'm on housing. I chair housing and buildings. I'm, I'm in leadership. So there's a lot of things that happen very quickly. And if you're not alert. You know, you you could you know be left holding a bag. So yeah, it also gives you that like mental agility too, which I'm Absolutely. sure you na- need uh, day in day out. So you know, one of the things that we've discussed you know over the years, and it's always a big issue, as I referenced before, all the laws and regulations, and just the general business climate, particularly for small businesses in New York City. So when you look at the New York City Council as a whole, what's your feeling or perception of how they relate to the local business community? So unfortunately, you know, there's this feeling uh, or narrative around being a progressive and progressive being anti-business and anti-development, right? And I think that that comes from the top of the ticket. So the National Democratic Party has to do a better job of articulating being a progressive as not being anti-business and not being. So I know a lot of small businesses are feeling that government is not working in its in its best you know, be, you know, on its on its behalf at this particular juncture, um, I think we've gotten caught up in the idea that anybody who earns money as an entrepreneur is a part of the one percent, which is a ridiculous proposition. Why? Why do you think that perception or that mentality has come out? Because I speak with small business owners in districts all throughout this city. And I got to tell you, most of them, as you know, are pretty progressive on most issues. But a lot of them have said to me, because I have to deal with all these laws and regulations, and I'm often meant to feel like the bad person, um, that they kind of question whether the Democratic or the Progressive Party is really with them. Where did this kind of weird relationship between being a progressive and doing air quotes, like not supporting small business. I, I, I think from. in the past two administrations, um, there was an emphasis placed on uh, worker rights and somehow worker rights um, equaled, you know, against business. So if, if you supported workers and if you wanted the best for workers, then you couldn't possibly be for, for businesses. And I think that's a ridiculous proposition. I think that you can actually build capacity in small businesses to, to, to blossom while still supporting worker rights. And most small businesses say the same thing. They want the best for their workers because it's a good business model. Yeah, so you yeah. want your workers to have, you know, uh, sick time and you want them to have the liberty to be able to clock in. You like, any, every small business I talked to said that that is great in premise. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what has happened though is, uh, I feel like because we only have two terms as city council members, and this is not me advocating for an extension of term limits, but what happens is we try to do a lot and be incredibly impactful in a short period of time. So paid sick, uh, increase in minimum wage, and now paid vacation on the table, all of that in and of itself is great policy. When you do it all at the same time, it disproportionately negatively impacts businesses. And businesses are I, I feel like they're afraid to step forward and say, hey, this is killing us because they, because then it'll be narrated as them being against worker rights. So yeah. we're, we're in this vicious cycle right now where somebody's got to slow this train down in order to help 
businesses get a grasp on the new legislation and policy coupled with the fines and fees. They are not wrong in complaining vehemently about it, but it doesn't mean that they are against workers. That's the problem. Yeah. Term limits is interesting. I've had a lot of conversations about the pros and cons and what you pointed out, you know, you're in for four years and if you get reelected, you have eight years and you want to get as many policies that you believe are good policies through. So people are on that timetable. Uh, Also, I think one of the things with issues like wage increases and other mandates, you know, you may pass a policy that could have significant impacts, but you are out of office by the time those impacts are apparent. Right. So that's that ugly word, accountability. So <laughs> so you're not accountable yeah. for some of the ridiculous things that we've put forward as a council. We'll never, you know, we'll yeah. never be accountable for that. Whereas in other governmental bodies, somebody can 10 years from now go, hey, Rob Cornegie, weren't you the guy who said that we should do this? And just for the record, uh, there are some of us who are... Um, uh, I'd like to say pro-growth progressives, right? Yeah. So I, I consider myself a pro-growth pro- progressive, which means in, in, in practice means that when we were implementing the, the uh, minimum wage increase, I said, great, but can we do it incrementally so that businesses can adjust their pricing structure so they're not being disrespectful to their customer base? Yes. So I didn't think we should do it overnight. I thought, yes, we should go to $15 an hour, which is really not enough to, that's not a livable yeah. wage in this city, but that's a whole no- yeah. argument for another day, Andrew. But we should go to that, but we should be respectful of businesses and their loyalty to their customers by letting them adjust their pricing structure over a period of time so people can, like if I'm going, if I, and I said literally in a meeting, if I'm going from paying a dollar for a burger to paying a dollar fifty the next day, then I'm I'm feeling disrespected and I may not come back to that establishment. Yeah. And that, that's unfair to put business owners in a controversial relationship with their customer base that way. Yeah, it's a value perception. We talk about that a lot, you know, especially for certain types of, you know, restaurants where your customers are on a budget and they don't have as, as, as much expendable money as, you know, a, a, as they'd like. Um, there's only so much someone's willing to pay for a burger or a bowl of pasta. So they end up getting that sticker shock. And that's always been a balance for small business owners of saying, I want to be affordable. I want to be that neighborhood restaurant, but I need to increase my prices to cover these new expenses because the restaurant industry is a penny business and there's just not enough margins to continue to increase and increase. And it tends not to be just one mandate. I think it's the number of mandates that have been implemented over such a short period of time Absolutely, that creates the challenges to administer them. And that also helps you know, create this frustration among business owners. And that's why when they hear from people like you and a few others in the council that, you know, do have this kind of pro-growth, progressive slant towards the way that they legislate and the way they view the world, um, I think they're, they're hopeful. So we, we, we appreciate you for that. So Yeah, and I, and I don't want to act like, I'm you know, I stand totally alone. There are a few of us who constantly, um, if not push back, but at least challenge some of the uh, mandates. Like, for example, you know, we have uh, now on the table uh, paid vacation. Yeah. And the speaker, uh, after hearing from some of us about how this combined with all of the other things that's happened in a six-year period, in this two, in this second term administration, we've done a lot of things that are positive for workers that 
ultimately will have a negative impact. And so I've been in rooms where people have said, statistically, it's not proven that all of the things that we're, we've done is going to close businesses. And I said, even if it doesn't close them, I can tell you, uh, I can tell you anecdotally and I can also tell you statistically that there are businesses who've decreased their workforce. So they didn't close their business, but they went from 12 workers to nine. Yeah. What, what's, what's the long-term disproportionate impact of that? Yeah. On and- our economy and on our employment. Hundred percent. And the other thing that I is interesting to me, and I've thought about it quite a bit, is my understanding. Um, you know, when it comes to kind of progressive issues, that you know, you're supposed to have. If you can't have sympathy because you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes, like have empathy. And I think just because there are businesses in New York City. That's great, but those business owners shouldn't constantly be stressed out. You know, it's nights, weekends, holidays, as I discussed before, um, that we need to create a business environment where they don't constantly feel under attack because, yes, they're cutting hours for employees. They may be reducing the total number of employees they have, and some of them do shutter, and you see the vacant storefronts throughout the city, um, but we shouldn't judge the health or how we should regulate the business community solely based on the number of businesses or the number of jobs. I think we also need to get a temperature of what it is like to be in the shoes of those people running the businesses, and if we can do that, then we can be these pro-growth progressives Absolutely. that New York City needs and deserves to have. But even if you don't have the capacity to do that and you're a by-the-numbers person, you would know that 67% of employment in the city of New York is in small business. Yeah. So let's let's. So what are we going to do? We're going to yep. build capacity in small business to hire more. Yep. If you if you really were thinking about this in a progressive way, yes. That's why pro-growth progressives. That's that's exactly how we think. So we say yes. We want to make sure that our workers are protected yep. and they're not being abused. Um, but we also want to not put the onus solely on business to be, not be able. To, and, and then there's this idea that all business is big business. So unfortunately for the state. A hundred or under businesses still constitute small business. That's not who we see in New York, though, right? So who we see in New York is the mom and pops who are micro businesses who are 15, 10, you know, plus the the business owner as as, as a part of that employment pool. Um, And I think that if if we could explain this to my other 50 members in the body and the other bodies, state and federal bodies, they could get an understanding of really what business looks like in the city. So business doesn't look like Goldman Sachs. Yep. Generally, it looks like mom and pops who are on the ground struggling to survive, who don't have chains, who don't have who, who really have invested two and three generations yep. into their craft and who need the support of the city and to be more empathetic to what their needs are. Yeah. Listen, I'm not anti-chain at all. Um, I think there's a lot of great chain stores, but I will say it is the small mom and pop New York born, bred. Someone came here, opened up a unique business that makes New York City so special. And we talk about what the 65 million plus tourists that come to New York City every year. They're not coming to see the chain stores because guess what? They have them wherever they're Absolutely. coming from. Absolutely. They're coming to see, you know, the cool little record shop, the little cocktail bar, you know, uh, the boutique clothing store. And that's what gives us the vibe, the culture that everyone loves about New York City. Um, so we need to get services to these businesses as well. You know, it's not just talking about what shouldn't we do to, you know, 
hurt small business, but what can the city government in particular do to help us? So I know you've been a real champion of some policies for small businesses. Uh, I know one, the Chamber on the Go program. Can you tell us a little yeah, bit so, about that? So that's probably one of my my proudest programs, right? Because that really, we, we shepherded that from, an, from a concept mm-hmm. into actually a pilot and then into a citywide program. So the Chamber on the Go was designed simply and basically because when I got to the council as a member, I saw the great array of things SBS had to offer small businesses for support. But I realized that these micro businesses don't have the capacity to send someone, even if it's, you know, downtown for an hour or two to get access. If you had a million dollars to offer most micro businesses and it required them to sit in a room to do it, they couldn't do it. So I simply said, whatever you guys have at SBS, we want to put it on an RV. I'm, I'm, I'm going to date myself here, but I remember having, you know, the library vans that would come around to communities, you know, the bookmobile. I said, I want it bookmobile style. So whatever services that you offer, whether it's access to capital, access to technical assistance, put it in a vehicle. Let's go to the commercial thoroughfares and let's invite businesses down to come out of their business in close proximity to get what they need and, um, to, the former speaker's credit, I had a meeting with her and she said, yes, it was a go. And it was carried over into this administration and now picked up by SBS. And it started in Brooklyn because I'm, I'm, I'm a Brooklyn guy. If, any, if nobody knows, I'm a Brooklyn guy. And we started it at the Brooklyn Chamber. But actually, it went, it kind of went like this. It was a concept and an idea. And the speaker said to me, Melissa Mark Viverito said, you got to have a nonprofit that could could absorb this that we can find that has a long history. The the best history for nonprofits in business in all five boroughs were the chambers. Yeah. So I went right to um, Carlos Sassura at that time, who's somewhere else now, but he was there then. I pitched, I think before I got done with my initial pitch, he was all in. And then we went back to the speaker and said, here's a, here's the uh, partner that we have. We'd like to pilot it in Brooklyn. And, and, and now it's in all five boroughs. Uh, very, great. very proud of that program. So now business owners, they can contact their borough chamber of commerce to learn more or SBS, which is the Department of Small Business Services. Either or. Great. Either or. And they will, they will come out faster than, you know, you would, you would anticipate. And everything literally from access to tech, to technical assistance to access to capital is available, uh, in a truncated version and in a mobile version through Chamber on the Go. That's great. Um, let's talk about, the relationship between the retail tenants, whether it's, you know, just a regular retail store or it's a restaurant or a bar and landlords, you know, like in every industry, there's always going to be, you know, bad apples, bad employers, bad workers. But generally, I like to think most people, you know, are good. But small businesses can feel pressure. There's different dynamics in different neighborhoods that are you know, have historically increased rent. Um, what have you done or what are you hearing from your constituents when it comes to dealing with their landlords? Yeah, so there's 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 horrible stories uh, with, with, with dealing with especially commercial tenants and landlords. And um, that was one of the things I wanted to strike at first, this 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 to let businesses know that we as a city supported them in this endeavor to try to negotiate fair contracts uh, for them. So what we did was we created legislation with financial supports to actually be able to go in and um, help help businesses through through legal supports mm-hmm. uh, on 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 their leases. 
So I, again, that's something I'm very, I'm very proud. Yeah, of that's as well. one of those things. Again, you know, it costs a lot to have lawyers, and it's also complicated. And small business owners don't always have the bandwidth to do everything. So having these types of resources, I think, are really helpful, um, especially trying to negotiate or deal with a lease that makes sense for that business in the long term. And then and and part of that was we tried to replicate the model where we found that there were landlords who were doing illegal things to force tenants out uh, uh, pre um, their contracts ending. Uh, we found some really egregious cases where we had landlords literally take the roof off the building wow. for repairs and expose um, a tenant's, a commercial tenant's, uh, his wares. Yeah. And so what we said was, just like the city will not allow landlords to do that to residential tenants, we created and crafted a, a law that would, if you were found doing that, it was illegal to do that. Prior to that, that was a tactic. Yeah. That was unfortunately used, whether it was taking a roof off a building or leaving up um, uh, the the scaffolding yes. to cover your signs for That's a period been of time. That's an ongoing issue right. with the scaffolding. And, and what we've said is if you can find that, that that's being left up in an effort to – like landlords are very unscrupulous in the way that they use that. If it's done to – you know, to – uh, save work on a facade or something, but we found landlords were doing it just to run businesses out of business because if people can't access those businesses or if it's difficulty to access them or if they can't see the sign, all those kind of little tactics were being used to drive small businesses out of so that, so that a landlord could then go in behind yep. and, and jack that rent up. Yeah. The scaffold, I'll tell you, the scaffolding is a big issue. We've conducted some surveys of businesses and we found for restaurants when the scaffolding goes up, Business goes down between twenty and thirty percent. Absolutely, and and those landlords know that. Yeah. Right? So and and they're operating unscrupulously. But this new law um, that was put in place a couple of years ago says that if you can you, if you can prove that we can we can uh, regulate that on those landlords. Landlords weren't happy about that because yeah. they had operated kind of in this little chasm of being able to do whatever sure. they wanted to do. So I'm, I'm proud of that well, in hope- terms of support. Hundred percent. So um, while we're talking about you know kind of landlords, rent, development, you know it's always been a difficult issue, and you know different business owners have different feelings about the rent. Is it too damn high? Is it starting to come down now? I read a report that uh, commercial rents are actually coming down in almost every neighborhood, except one or two corridors throughout the city. Um, putting that aside, there have been historically in New York City and elsewhere situations where a developer is developing a new property and they may get some sort of tax subsidies by the government. And in basically a trade for those subsidies, they're required to provide affordable rents for residential tenants. Absolutely. Um, I've had discussions with others about providing uh, affordable commercial space to restaurants to other types of retail stores uh, in new developments or existing ones where the developer or the landlord gets some sort of subsidies. I believe you had some sort of program in Brooklyn that yep. did something similar. So so we uh, – thanks for mentioning that. Uh, two things. Uh, one is we began to watch development in a way and what I wanted to do uh, in my community, if you, if you ride some of the commercial thoroughfares, they're filled with – 99 cent stores and, and it's so duplicative. Mm-hmm. It's not, it doesn't, uh, it's not conducive for someone coming out and spending the entire day on a commercial thoroughfare. So we wanted to make sure that we could be responsible for retail diversity on those core, on those corridors. So I started meeting with developers and saying, Hey, 
Um, through the ULR process, I'd like for you to give me uh, some com- affordable commercial space. And most landlords push back. They said, that's not part of, we don't have to do that. And then we found a couple of landlords who, as an amenity to the tenants in their building, but also as a, as a good faith um, and responsible development, they said, well, what do you want, Rob? I said, look, I'd like, and, and this one in particular had 25,000 square feet of commercial or retail space at the bottom. Now, I'm not unfamiliar with the idea that the way you get your, you know, the affordable residential is to get whatever you can yeah. on the commercial space. But what we said was, what if you gave us 5,000 square feet of commercial space at 1,000 square foot interval. So I'm sure that it's mom and pops that are going in there, whether it's a shoe shop, whether it's the cleaners, whatever it is that's going to enhance the experience of your tenant, right? So you can get, you know, some, 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 some great rents on your tenancy by having, um, these amenities. Uh, and, and they agreed and it was a model that we thought could be replicated. So they gave us 5,000 square feet, 1,000 square foot intervals, but I was very specific. I was like street facing yes. because I couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I couldn't yeah. get the, the side of the, back, in the back of the building. No, they, they acquiesced to, to doing that. And now that's a model that being replicated on a lot of projects in my district. Yeah. As a matter of fact, developers know that when they come to meet me, uh, that they should talk about uh, residential affordability, but they better have something in the portfolio that suggests and not just a community space, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of developers say, oh, we'll give you a community space. Um, that's the first part. The second part is we went back to land use and we said the little used fresh program, which everyone hates, right? Mm-hmm. The fresh program, it doesn't work. It was a program to put supermarkets in places that were food deserts um, to ask for uh, these subsidies. Yes. So we said nobody likes it. It's a, it's a, it's a cumbersome project. Nobody wants to do it. And the food deserts, like in my district, we're not, we're not a food desert anymore. We have, we have plenty of fresh food. What if we took that same program and applied it to being able to break up those spaces? So a 25,000 square foot space be, be broken up. That was more conducive for mom and pop spaces. And that got a subsidy, the same that was offered. And so now we are exploring that. So we've done it. We modeled it. And now it looks like we're going to be able to legislate it going forward wow. in the ULER process. So I'm excited That's about that. That's nice. And you said that. that some of the landlords or the developers were kind of open and interested. Absolutely. Do they still – what's the relationship yeah, well, when, now? When, you, when, they- when I sold it as the idea of an amenity and being a good – you know, a, a, a good uh, de- having a good development relationship with the communities that you that you yeah. serve in, people saw that as a way to to actually achieve that. Um, so I, I think it's working. Listen, my, my I have my friends in in Staten Island who are asking about how we how we did right. that project. Two projects they're asking about: one that ULERP process, mm-hmm. and then two we have something um, uh, that we call um, shared economy weekend. Right. So so many people know that the city. Um, has articulated a message around, uh, either share economy, sharing mm-hmm. economy or brick and mortars and seem to think that they are mutually exclusive. What we said in my district was, no, we're going to take the shared economy and marry it to brick and mortar. So we, on our, on our, on a weekend in Bed-Stuy, we have transportation, app-based transportation companies who will do discounted rides to bars, lounges, and restaurants on Friday. Um, retail outlets on Saturday and cultural institutions yeah. on Sunday. And we've seen an uptick to the tune that on that Friday, uh, because so many people are coming into the district that they have to hire one more cook, one more waitress. So it actually is a job creator, which is not something that, you know, that's, that's, was a, intended. No, it that's ended a great, up it's a great, it's a great byproduct. And we think that that's replicable, uh, throughout the city. 
where we're not saying that it's mutually exclusive to have brick and mortars or to have, you know, these these shared economy um, um, uh, assets that we have in the city. We can marry the two together and and it drives traffic to to because small businesses were telling me, Rob, if you could help me with foot traffic. And I was like, I don't know. As yeah. the chair of small business, I don't know how I can help you with foot traffic. And then it dawned on me if we drive traffic. By having a, a simple partnership between app-based transportation companies, which is the wave of the future. Sure. I'm a dad, two girls. I tried to put one of my daughters recently into a limo for um, <laughs> for prom. And she was like, Dad, nobody drives Romeo rides limos anymore. Uh, yeah. it's, it's economically, I mean, it's environmentally unfriendly yeah. for me to be in a limo. We take these cars, executive cars. It goes. It comes back when we want. So. No matter what we think, no matter what, what I think as an old guy, this is this is everything is shared oh, man, to the I'm day. Thinking, my daughter's four and a half, so we're not there oh, yeah, yet. I don't know. But she's I'm like, starting she's, to think about there's it. some hovercraft <laughs> yeah, that she's going to yeah, be going on. Exactly, that, exactly. That, that that is a shared experience. So because of that, how do we how do we take this new uh, emerging economy and marry it to solid brick and mortars? And I, and I think that that's a great way to do it, especially in, especially in nightlife. Yeah. Bars, listen, the bars, lounges, and restaurants clamor. They call me. When is the, when is the weekend again? Yeah. Why is it only one weekend? Yeah. Um, uh, so now, actually, we're doing it for the holiday because we wanted to do that the weekend in the spring, and then now a holiday. My hope is that this will organically take hold, and there'll be no need to do weekends or, or months or anything. It'll just be that these are married together in a way that they both flourish. This is music to my ears. I love this because I'm constantly thinking about what can government do, and it's not always just regulations, but it's just setting up policies and systems that can help kind of create a better, more vibrant environment. I'm actually the first chair of Community Board 7 on the Upper West Side, and we're going through you know, the Euler process, which is basically when the Developers, or then there's a big change to how land, you know, the land use process, they have to come in front of the community board. And there's often a negotiation of how many affordable units, what's the design of the building, and other aspects of how the new development or the change to the development will impact you know, the land and the community around it. Um, so that's a great time to be having conversations about not only who's going to be living there, but Who's going to be shopping there? You know, what's the foot traffic going to be like? And when we see vacant storefronts or when we see, you know, e-commerce versus brick and mortar, I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive, as you said. We really need to have a kind of wide reaching conversation about the state of the small business community and the big business community and realize that it's constantly going to be in flux and it's continuing to evolve. So we, as New Yorkers, need to think about it and have policies that can be flexible as the climate changes. But we just can't say, oh, there's a lot of businesses here in New York City and feel like just because we're in New York City, we're always going to have businesses. We actually have to take action to help and support them. And it sounds just like what you're doing in yeah, your that's, district. That's a nuanced brand of leadership. So yes. uh, the style of leadership in this city has, for its history, has been one that was either, you know, it's, it's, it's black or white. Right. Yeah. And that's not, we don't operate in a black or white yeah. world today. There are, there are new emerging. Listen, I feel like the fact that Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and all of these, uh, uh, shared economy companies kind of wound up on New York's doorstep mm-hmm. is a travesty. 
I think that we should have gone and gotten whatever the best and the brightest was and had a had an environment for it to be regulated as it came in. Because yes. now what we're what we're finding ourselves doing is trying to regulate them out of business, yep. which is not. the Listen, we know that there's emerging economies all over the world. I believe that we the world shifts on the axis of New York like we are everything. And so we should be scouring the globe to find new business and have an, a, a business climate that's welcoming. Uh, not to give away the store, but we can have a framework that if you come here, these are the things that we need. I, I mean, we got to be positive thinkers yeah. like that. You can think about this. So the fact that they got here and our fight over the last six years has been to shrink them says that we were unprepared for 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 them. And we know that on the West Coast, if you go there, I've, I've gone places and I'm I'm looking on the ground like, what are, what are these scooters? What, yes. what is that? So we know that's coming. Like yes. the, the kids were scootering by me and dropping the scooters. And, what is what is this? Yeah. So it's a simple question as to what the new emerging economies are and how do we bring them into a system that creates jobs and that has a solid tax base and who does all the things that we do that progresses us as a city and pays into our, our education and and our transportation and all of the kind of things that are broken right now, we have opportunities to undergird them by being uh, nuanced in our leadership and looking at emerging economies and bringing them here. Yeah, listen, you can't stop progress. You can't stop evolution. It's all happening. And one of the things the New York City Hospitality Alliance is doing in 2020, I can't believe we're going to be in 2020, a new decade, new decade. is uh, you know, making sure that we are proactive and not just reactive. We need to be out there saying, what do we as a business community want? You know, it's clear things that we don't want, but what are reforms that would be helpful to us? And I think part of that is also saying, you know, the world is changing and it's changing quick. So how do we create a structure in which we can think about emerging technologies and how they're going to impact the industry? I've been writing a lot recently about ghost kitchens for restaurants, which we won't get too much into, but what are the implications for that? Uh, your colleague, uh, Mark Joe who is the current chair of the uh, Committee on Small Business is, has been doing a lot around restaurant delivery and these third-party platforms and how it impacts small businesses. And a lot of this, like you said, we're kind of playing catch-up. And when you're playing catch-up, you can kind of regulate someone out of business or create an environment that just makes it just very unfriendly to them. And that is not what we should be creating here uh, in New York, in, in my opinion. So kind of leading into that, you speak with small business owners all the time, but you're also on the council. So you see it from a different position, how you are uniquely situated. What do you think small business owners could be doing and should be doing to make sure that their voice is heard in the halls of government? So in an ideal world, um, Again, small businesses wouldn't be reactionary. They, they'd be, they'd be, um, presenting policies that are in their best interest, not, not hearing about policies and then trying to fight against them because it does, it does, it impacts them negatively. Now, that's, that's in the, that's in a utopian world. In the real world, businesses have to tend to their business. Um, so it's, it's, it's a difficult balance. I understand that, hey, if you guys were, because we're all driven by, our constituencies. When I was the chair of small business, I was clear that small businesses were my constituency. Now that I chair housing and buildings, I'm clear that um, being a, 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 a pro-growth uh, progressive means that I have to take into consideration the interest of development in the city. How is it positively or negatively impacting the city? How is it positively or negatively impacting minority communities? All those kinds of things. So 
in a utopian world, you guys would be giving me your recommendations for 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 what a business climate should be I'm in the city. I'm taking notes. But but I but I'm acutely aware that the minute we turn away from this conversation, people have got to go back to work. When they turn this show off, there's some customer who's got a need. There's 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 the suppliers that they have to address. You know, they're, you know, some of their boards. Like so, there are real world situations. But for me, if I could sit at my desk and a portion of my day was filled with getting recommendations, uh, logical and reasonable recommendations from the business community, my my asset, my greatest asset, is that I turn people's requests into policy and legislation. Uh, for for the show's sake, I won't. It really, it's I turn people's uh, uh, complaints yes. into that. But the but for, for 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 the show, I turn people's concerns and and needs into policy and legislations. I do that. I do that very well. So if I could have someone who was feeding that, and so we have so many entities, and then there's labor who who, who plays a major part in how the cities develop. So you have all of these different components, moving parts. Um, I think. Again, in a utopian world, I'm getting recommendations all day. I'm turning those recommendations into solid policy and legislation. People think I'm relatively smart. I'm not really that smart. I just listen well, right? So I listened to that constituency. When I was the chair of small business, it was very simple. You guys and your constituency would come in. They'd articulate for me how things could be better. And we'd go about the business of making it better. I'm not a genius. Chamber on the go came because some businesses said, hey, I, the city does nothing for us. And I said, no, they do. And then we said, well, then there was this chasm between what they actually do and how it gets to businesses. And we just filled that chasm. It's funny. It's very similar to what you hear from entrepreneurs. A lot of them say, I'm not creating some brilliant new product. I'm just figuring out, you know, where is there a need and there's a void in the marketplace servicing that need. And then they enter it and they do it in a way that has a beneficial impact. So it's kind of the same it's, with the legislative it's, it's, process. It's hundred percent the same in the if you have that nuance around the leadership. Yes, yes. And, that, and that's what we need. So I have two things before we let you go. One, if you were not uh, in the council or in government right now, what would you be doing, do you think? Well, the, the, the younger me would be playing ball somewhere, which <laughs> which these old knees don't allow for anymore. So um, you were at St. John's. I played at St. John's, and I actually had the pleasure of playing professionally in Israel, Turkey, France, Spain, and Colombia. Man, and you played – tell me about the team. So it was Mullen. It was the team. Tell me about it. It, it real was quick. it was Chris Mullen, Walter Berry, Mark Jackson. So you had two Hall of Famers on wow. that team, and we went to the Final Four that year. The uniqueness of the team, though, I got to tell everybody, is everyone on that team for the first time in history was from the tri-state area. Wow! So that was some Brooklyn kids. I mean, and, and Jersey being the sixth borough, you had Willie Glass coming down from Atlantic City. So everybody was, which 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 made for an environment of these were our kids. This is our we know these kids, Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx. That's great. You you know, and and New Jersey, so it, it was it was a great opportunity. You still shoot around, even though I still though- shoot around. Listen, I have six kids, and they're getting big and strong, and so you got to know when to fold them. Uh, so I'm shooting around loosely is a term that I use, but I'm not I'm not I'm not playing competitively. You really are you the tallest elected official? Someone just told me that said you're the yeah, tallest. So, so according to Guinness Book. Uh, the tallest, uh, the tallest politician in the world. Um, it's been challenged, and we'll we'll, we'll meet that challenge. I did that a Guinness Book World Record holder. That's pretty impressive. You have tall. Your kids are tall. Yeah. So my oldest, well, my second oldest is seven. I have seven feet. My daughter six six. I have a daughter six two, and I have twin boys who are twelve who are six three. 
Wow. Very nice. I was actually just talking to one of our members. Her son is, I think, 6'10", 6'11", and he's early tw- early 20s, maybe he's 20, not even, but uh, we, we, we were talking about it. It's interesting maneuver and all, but you, you're moving around and legislating, using your height to your legislative advantage Absolutely. so you can dunk on uh, That's right. other legislators. So what's funny is, though, a lot of times the seniors in my district will be like, oh, when you see the mayor, I want you to pat him <laughs> on the head. I'm like, I'm not patting the mayor yeah. on the head, Miss Jackson, but I understand, <laughs> I understand your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's what, he's like, what, 6'7", six, 6'5", six, six, yeah, six, 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 arguably. Nah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm 5'10", and that's the real height. I just saw something the other day. Someone posted on Twitter. They said, uh, you know, the guy who says he's, you know, 5'8", is really 5'5", five, five. and I said, well, I'm really 5'10", so that's, I, I just give my real, legit, legit five ten. Legit five ten, all there five eleven with my sneakers on. Um, so your future. So we turn, talked about earlier um, term limits. You have two uh, four year terms. You are in your second term. There's about two years left almost. Yes. Yep. Um, what's the future looking like for you? So listen, I'm very proud to have been uh, in the top ten percentile of substantive legislation that's produced, and I I tout pro growth progressive and being a nuanced leader. I think that I am uniquely qualified to lead the borough of Brooklyn, which arguably is the third or fourth largest city in the in the country, um, and has this burgeoning tourism and hospitality that needs to be actually harnessed in a way that everybody benefits from. So I'm I'm looking forward to being the next borough president of of the greatest borough in the city. Love it. So so I don't live in Brooklyn, but going back to my great grandparents, basically my whole family came uh from Brooklyn at some point. Um, what is the role of the Brooklyn Borough President in a quick minute or two? And what are some ideas, if you were elected, that you'd want to implement in that role? So, I, first of all, the, the the Borough President is responsible for shaping through through his capital budget the way the borough actually looks, right? So, there's a, there's a lot of money to be spent in neighborhoods, capital you know, for capital budgets, for schools, for, 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 for buildings, um, which I think I'm uniquely qualified to do as the, as the former chair of, uh, small business and the current chair of housing and buildings. Um, uh, I feel unique, you know, I, I actually tell people, I joke that I, I actually think we're both sides of my brain. And I think that, um, being able to apply those resources to help shape the borough around affordability, around these commercial thoroughfares, around all of the things that make for a great experience, I'm uniquely qualified to do it. And that's what the borough president does. I'm saddened by the fact that I don't have the same legislative and policy powers, but I can partner with the 51 member body to be able to produce legislation as well. Got it. So if someone wants to find out about your work in the council or your campaign for Brooklyn Borough President, where do they find you? I am R. Carnegie Jr. on Twitter and Instagram and Robert E. Carnegie Jr. I'm sorry, council member Robert E. Carnegie Jr. on Facebook. Um, and then you could just go to the council and the council page and type my name in and some great stuff will come up. Beautiful. Councilman, I have to say on behalf of small businesses, you have always been a good friend. Your phone, your door has always been open. You're a strong advocate out there. And I know it's not always easy to do. So we appreciate your commitment to civic issues, particularly those of small business owners in the borough of Brooklyn, but really citywide. So I want to thank you for coming on the show keep up the good work hopefully we'll have you back at some point here about your campaign other work you're doing and uh let's see we'll talk soon thanks andrew i really appreciate being on you got it 
I'd like to give a big thank you to our guest, New York City Council Member Robert E. Cornegie Jr. for coming in, talking about local politics and the small business community here in the five boroughs. I want to thank everyone for listening to Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Please rate, review, share this show with anyone you think that would like it. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at the NYC Alliance. That's at the NYC Alliance. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn, New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey. And I'm at Twitter at Andrew Ridgey and Instagram, Political Foodie NYC. Join our movement, support the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Find us, the NYC Alliance.org. We'll talk to you next time.